country and all who serve it, and the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Like these seven sentences, the Kennedy grave is spare but majestic, unadorned yet elegant. It may also be the saddest place in America, aside from the Vietnam Memorial, with which its words have an uneasy relationship. The slabs of black main slate covering Kennedy's corpse and those of his wife and two infant children are simple and stark, yet lie on a hillside that commands a majestic view of Washington's great monuments. By design, they lie on an imaginary axis connecting the Lincoln Memorial with the former home of Robert E. Lee that occupies the crest of this hill. The elements of the gravesite are modest. A rough circular rock resembling a millstone surrounds the eternal flame, and plants native to Cape Cod fill cracks between paving stones quarried in the 18th century from a location near the Kennedy home at Hyannisport. Still, Kennedy sits high above the white crosses and headstones marking the graves of 260,000 other Americans. And no other American president, not Lincoln, FDR, Jefferson, or Wilson, has such a magnificent grave in the nation's capital. Kennedy's eternal flame is smaller than the one beneath the Arc de Triomphe, yet he is the only president honored by a blaze promising to last throughout eternity. And this reminder of him is situated so it flickers in the White House windows, an inspiration or reproach to the men who have followed him. When Kennedy delivered his inaugural, I was in the infirmary of a Massachusetts boarding school. The only other patient was my Latin teacher, a middle-aged bachelor with an explosive temper who had commanded a black infantry unit during World War II's Pacific Campaign. We were joined at the television that winter morning by the school nurse, a Dura Nova Scotian, who had once tended the wounded at a Halifax military hospital. We saw, in black and white, a cloudless sky, sharp light, and air so cold it turned Kennedy's breath into white clouds. When he said, Let the word go forth from this time and place, it appeared that each word he spoke really was going forth into the exhilarating air that everyone in the nation breathed that day. We saw a Courier and Ives tableau, wintry and patriotic. Wind ruffled the festive bunting, and the marble facade of the Capitol gleamed. Sunlight bounced off snowbanks, and spectators shielded their eyes. Rows of dignitaries filled the platform. The men wore dark overcoats and top hats, outfits for tycoons and statesmen. Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon sat in a semicircle of armchairs. Kennedy was young and deeply tanned, whereas President Eisenhower, whom he was replacing, was bald and blinking. The four men's wives, all former and future first ladies, although two of them did not know it yet, sat behind them in the first row on either side of the podium. A faint smile remained frozen on Jackie Kennedy's face, as if she was party to some delicious secret. No one suspected that Kennedy had dressed in long underwear, so that on this cold day he could shed his overcoat and appear youthful and vigorous. No one knew that he was receiving amphetamine injections from a physician who would one day lose his license for dispensing this medicine. 
No one realized that behind his ringing and confident delivery lay months of secret tutoring from a speech coach. No one imagined that Rose Kennedy was fuming over her row-end seat, or that Eleanor Roosevelt had refused her place of honor because she could not bear being close to Kennedy's father, or that there was so much bad blood between the dignitaries on this platform that if grudges had weight, the entire contraption would have instantly crashed to the ground. When President Kennedy finished speaking that day, I saw tears on the cheeks of the Latin teacher and nurse, and realized that words capable of touching such well-guarded, deeply buried hearts must be powerful ones indeed. Later, after Dallas and Vietnam, and after it became apparent that this would be the last time the Kennedy family would gather in such numbers to celebrate a happy occasion, the photographs, films, and memories of this day would become more poignant and unsettling. And later still, after Kennedy's wife and his son, John Jr., had died, and the Cold War had ended, these seven sentences would remain, carved into stone and woven into lives. A college student who would join the first class of Peace Corps volunteers remarked, I'd never done anything political, patriotic, or unselfish, because nobody ever asked me to. Kennedy asked. After watching the inaugural on television in her college dormitory, Donna Shalala, who would serve in President Clinton's cabinet, was inspired to pursue a career in public service. When she reread what Kennedy had said four decades later, she was astonished to discover that she could still hear his voice. The cardinal, who would become Pope Paul VI in 1963, listened over the radio in Milan and was so moved by the vigorous, classical, and sacred eloquence of the speech and its moral significance that he reread the text numerous times over the years. His landmark 1967 encyclical, calling on wealthy nations to alleviate poverty and promote social justice in the Third World, echoed its themes and language. On the evening after Kennedy spoke, James Meredith, a black U.S. Air Force veteran, took a step he had been debating for months, typing a letter to the registrar of the all-white University of Mississippi that began, Please send me an application for admission to your school. Two years later, Kennedy would send 23,000 American troops onto the campus to quell a riot ignited when Meredith attempted to register for classes. The historian and former White House aide Arthur Schlesinger may have been thinking of Meredith when he concluded his 1965 memoir of the Kennedy administration, A Thousand Days, by saying that the energies Kennedy released, the purposes he inspired, the goals he established, would guide the land he loved for years to come. Those years are ending, as the young people who heard Kennedy deliver his address retire from the careers it inspired. Soon his words will have to stand on their own merits, unsupported by the memories of those who heard them. Now, before that happens, might be a good time to ask why the words of this supposedly cool and unemotional man had such an impact on so many lives and elicited such a passionate response. Praise for the address was so extravagant that it was difficult to believe almost half of the electorate had preferred Nixon. The New Yorker compared it to the best of classical oratory, declaring, We find it hard to believe that an Athenian or Roman citizen could have listened to it unmoved. The Times of London detected the cadence of Abraham Lincoln's oratory and Lincoln's sense of the spiritual mission of the great presidential office. The intellectuals, initially the most resistant to Kennedy's charm, offered the most ecstatic reviews. Kennedy's speech moved even the hearts of his adversaries. Life magazine, which had endorsed Nixon, 
reprinted it under the headline, A Great Speech, and said it rang with a rhetoric rarely found in a political statement. Senator Barry Goldwater, leader of the conservative wing of the Republican Party, remarked, God, I'd like to be able to do what that boy did there. The idea of a speech stirring up such excitement now seems quaint and dated, and it is difficult to imagine lives changed by a presidential address. But in 1961, words existed in a precarious and momentary state of balance with the visual, a situation enabling Kennedy, who was comfortable in both media, to become the first television president and the last literate one. Words are mighty things, but their power waxes and wanes with the times, and they can move different audiences and generations in different ways. This may be why Ask Not has been criticized as a sinister pitch for voluntary fascism and hailed as an inspirational mantra, why passages from a speech advocating peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union could later inspire both those protesting the war in Vietnam and those waging it, and why passages inspiring the young in 1961 would make the post-Vietnam and post-Watergate disillusionment more bitter and the cynicism and greed of the following decades more discouraging. Theodore Sorensen was Kennedy's principal speechwriter and aide for over a decade. In his introduction to an anthology of Kennedy's writings and speeches, he offered a comment about his boss that originally described the English statesman William Pitt. It is not merely the thing that is said, but the man who says it that counts, the character that breathes through the sentences. But looking for Kennedy's character in his words can be a tricky proposition, as, according to conventional wisdom, the real author of his speeches, and the man whose character therefore...